Now, on Sunday mornings, as we've been working our way through Matthew, a couple of Sunday mornings back, maybe two or three now, we looked at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. You remember that in Matthew 24, there are those who think that it's all about the return of Christ. There are those who think that it's all about the destruction of Jerusalem. We saw that it is about both, and that the destruction of Jerusalem becomes in a certain sense, symbolic of that greater judgment that was to come when Jesus would return. And then, of course, we also saw several parables that gave to us us, um, a certain focus upon the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the parable of the burglar at the end of chapter 24 and also of the faithful servant, the parable of the ten virgins, and then the parable of the talents. And that brought us to that awe-inspiring text that we looked at this morning in Matthew 25 on Jesus' judgment of the nations. Now, I thought that it would be a good thing for us briefly this evening to turn to the book of Romans, the 13th chapter, and to focus upon some of the ethical implications of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I say brief, I think I really mean it. Um... But uh, a good way to bring to a conclusion some of the emphases that we have also been reading in Matthew of late. Let's bow in prayer before reading from the book of Romans. And now, Heavenly Father, as you have given to us the great privilege of looking at these awe-inspiring texts in the book of Matthew, may our brief look at this passage this evening in Romans, the 13th chapter, also help us to understand how we are to live. Grant us grace that, living for your glory, we may look for the return of Christ, anticipate it, and that that anticipation would change and transform our daily living. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our focus in Romans 13 will be upon verses 11 through 14, but let's begin reading at verse 8. This is the word of God. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, as we looked at Matthew recently, I brought to you a quotation from Gerhardus Voss that I thought was extremely important. It was this, the gauge of health in the Christian is the degree of his gravitation to the future eternal world. Listen to it again. The gauge of health in the Christian is the degree of his gravitation to the future eternal world. 
Now, we used to hear someone is so heavenly-minded that he's no earthly good, but the New Testament perspective is quite the opposite. The more truly heavenly-minded we are, the more earthly good we are. The more truly we are focused upon Christ who is coming again, upon our future inheritance, the more we will live to the glory of God in this present evil age. Now, that's what Voss is saying when he speaks of the gauge of health in the Christian And surely if what he says is true, and I think it certainly is confirmed by all that we've been seeing in Matthew's gospel lately, then many of us are very unhealthy Christians indeed, because we are not focused upon our future inheritance. We are not focused upon the return of Christ. We do not think of the judgment that is to come, and we are not focused in our hearts upon the words with which we close our service every Sunday, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, I think that Voss's words compose a great commentary on the text that we've just read together in Romans chapter 13. This is precisely what Paul is teaching here. What is it to live in light of the coming of Christ? We're asking the question, so what? Yes, Christ is coming. What should that mean to me? What does it call forth from us? And there are many things found in the New Testament, but in this passage, let me point out three things, three truths. Three things that the coming of Christ, anticipating the Lord's return, calls forth from your life and from mine. The first thing that anticipating the return of Christ calls from my life and from yours as believers is that we be alert, that we be aware. Notice how he begins in verse 11 by saying, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Now, when he says, know the time, know the hour, the time or the hour means the time between the ascension and the return of Jesus Christ, this age in which we live. Obviously, we are focused when we live in light of Christ's coming. That is the point of the sleep metaphor. Why is sleep contrary to the attitude that Paul says we are to have in the Christian life? Because sleep is contrary to readiness. And readiness must characterize the Christian life as we are awaiting the end of time. How many times have you been overcome by temptation and later you had this thought, if only I hadn't been asleep, if only I had been more alert, if only I had been in, in, in earnest about my Christian walk, if I had been awake, if only I had been alert to the danger. Now that's precisely what Paul is telling us here. We are to know the time, we are to understand the hour, we are to live with our eyes wide open to the age, the era in which we live, in which the next great thing on God's eschatological clock is the return of Jesus Christ to judge the quick and the dead. Charles Simeon spoke to ministers a profound illustration that has been very meaningful to me, but I think it's more broadly applicable to all of us Christians. Simeon spoke about ministerial duties and faithfulness. The keep of the lighthouse at Inchkeith, the island in the, uh, near the Firth of Forth, and the water there at the Firth of Forth, He supposed the keeper of the lighthouse let the light go out, and as a consequence, all of the boats and ships collided into one another, 
And everywhere, widows and orphans wailed because of their dead that were washing up on shore. And then he imagined that the keeper of the lighthouse was brought before the court. And he was asked the question, what happened? And he confessed before the court, I was asleep. Asleep! You were asleep when you were called to keep the light burning so that ships would not collide into one another and on the rocks so that precious lives would be saved. You were asleep. Now that's what Paul is saying to us when he says, Besides this, know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. He speaks to us of Christian ethics, and the only way in which we Christians are going to keep our focus and keep from shipwreck is by being alert and by being awake. How applicable this is to us all. That is what Paul is combating when he is emphasizing the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the mentality that should grip us as we anticipate it. Christians then are alert when we live with the coming of Christ controlling our hearts and controlling our lives. Thoughts of Christ's coming serve as alarm clocks. Every time we slumber in the presence of sin and we think of the coming of Christ, it goes off and it helps to keep us awake. It is high time for you to wake out of your sleep, says Paul the Apostle. The time then is described as nearness. Look at verses 11 and 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Nearness, the nearness of the coming of Christ, the nearness of the end. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Now, when we talk about the soonness of the coming of Jesus, the nearness of his coming, remember how I spoke of God's time as a clock in which there is distance between the hours and the minutes that differs from the clocks that we have upon our walls. We don't know how much time there is between 11 o'clock and 12. At 11 o'clock, Jesus rose from the dead and ascended on high. But we know that 12 is next on the clock. How much time there is between God's 11 and 12 is his business. But it's the next thing. It is near. It is soon. And so this soonness in the timetable of the history of redemption is what he means when he speaks of the nearness or the soonness of the coming of Christ. Think of it this way. History is like a book. And the body of the book includes the cross and the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. But the conclusion of this book of history is being written between the ascension of Christ and his return. The supremely important events of history are accomplished except for the return of Jesus Christ. And this is the meaning of 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. As Calvin says, we must remember this principle, that from the time when Christ once appeared, there is nothing left for the faithful except always to look forward to his second coming with minds alert. And so every generation of believers is to live as if we could be the generation to which Christ returns 
And this could be the time in which he comes again. So living in light of Christ's coming should make us alert people. Note Paul's metaphors in verse 12. Night, day, dark, night. What does he mean by that? Well, night is this present evil age. The day is the coming age. The day is impending. He actually uses the verb prokoptane, which means to advance. His point here is the urgency that should characterize the Christian's life. The need to keep awake because time is chopping ahead, moving ahead. And the nearness of the return of Christ is the next thing to take place. Whenever Christ comes, we are nearer to it every hour. Think of that. Whenever he is coming again, we Christians are nearer to it every hour. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 says, But you are not in darkness, brethren, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And so do you understand that the coming of Christ, thinking upon the coming of Christ, dwelling upon this truth, getting it way down deep in your heart so that you think about it, remember it, dwell upon what the Bible teaches concerning it, is to make you to be very alert and awake in your Christian living and especially in your Christian ethics. That leads us, I think, to the second thing that Paul says right on the heels of it, and logically flowing from it. The second thing is this. If we are focused upon the coming of Christ, we are to live chaste lives. We are to live pure lives. The night metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses when he says the night is far gone, the day is at hand, you see it's followed there in verse 13 with let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. The night metaphor suggests the nightlife in the ancient city of Rome, the dark pursuits of pleasure, of power, and of possessions. So what Paul says about all of this takes on concrete expression in Christian ethics and took on concrete expression for those to whom the Apostle Paul was writing. He says to them, change your clothes. Cast off the works of darkness that characterize this present evil age. Don't live in reveling and in drunkenness. And Paul, by the way, pairs these words together. Reveling and drunkenness. Drunkenness spurs debauchery and licentiousness. Now, I think we need to learn from this clearly, clearly. But when young Christians today choose to frequent places... In which, in which unbelievers are living debauched lives, when unbelievers are drinking and partying up, and Christians think that they can go into these settings and not be affected, that our hearts are somehow protected from these things because we are regenerate, when the young today hang out in such places and wonder why they get into ethical trouble, I want to say, think, be awake, be alert to your surroundings. The Apostle Paul says, waiting for Christ's coming demands that we be alert in our Christian living. And that brings with it sexual purity, because sexual impurity 
has already been dealt with by the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of the book of Romans. Remember that he says that sexual confusion stems from the ingratitude of forgetting God. So the New Testament stresses chaste living very strongly, and Paul does in this passage. I fear that we're allowing ourselves to be influenced by the world around us and that we're not holding the biblical line on this. He says in verse 13, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Now some of you immediately are thinking this. This was the verse that was used by God to convert one of the early church fathers. This was the verse that God took to the heart of Augustine to convert him from his sin and to bring him into the kingdom. Augustine, who himself had lived an unchaste life, when he read this verse, this verse the Holy Spirit used to bring him to the Lord. And so he says to us Christians, be chaste. Live in expectancy. Do not disregard God's word and follow your own devising. Paul is emphasizing the seventh commandment. That living in light of Christ's coming calls us to live sexually pure lives. So to live in this unbiblical way, to disregard the seventh commandment as Christians, would be to live as if it were B.C. and not A.D. In other words, it would be to live as if Jesus has not come, as if he never atoned for sin. We are God's covenant people. Now, we are rightly focused upon our inheritance and the blessings that are ours, the promise of the covenant of grace as God's covenant people. But do we not see that the covenant not only brings to us promise, but also brings to us demands? Do we not also see that salvation by pure grace brings in its wake duties and obligations? Do we understand that knowing the Lord brings into our life a calling, a calling to live for Him and to live a certain lifestyle? Now, I'm very, very concerned by the, the tendency to legalism that we often see. But quite frankly, I think in the PCA, in our circles, the danger is on the other end. The danger is the potential of antinomianism. Here we are, the preachers of sovereign free grace, and oh, how we should never minimize it. But as we preach the grace of God, often, especially nowadays, I'm hearing, and especially from some of the young, and especially even some young ministers, antinomianism, a tendency to think that we can live as we, as we will, or that the law has, has no place in the Christian life. But old Samuel Bolton, the Puritan, was right when he said, The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. Now that's such an important statement, I'm going to read it to you again. I think if we grasp this, it would go a long way in helping us in our Christian living. The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The law can't justify it sends us to the gospel for our justification. But once we are justified, the gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. And so when we give in to sexual temptation, we are forgetting what time it is 
as Christians. We are forgetting what hour it is. We are forgetting that Jesus is coming again. And when we take things into our own hands, we have, I think, 22 young people that are traveling and won't hear this, uh, traveling with Pastor McDonald, but perhaps on another occasion they will. When young people take into their own hands this issue of how to deal with sexual pressure, when we think we have to take these things into our, our own hands, we're forgetting that God has promised us an inheritance. We're not living in light of the coming of Christ. And when you take things into your own hands, fundamentally you are saying, God is not good. He's holding something from me that is good for me. He is not good. And I have to get what I can my own way. Not only is it a fundamental denial of the return of Jesus Christ to judge the quick and the dead, but when we take sexual matters into our own hands as if we can establish our own law, then we are fundamentally denying the goodness of God. And so you see, the New Testament is not only against all forms of legalism, it is against all forms of antinomianism. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. And Paul here tells us not only how to walk, he tells us how not to walk. Did you notice that? The Apostle Paul not only finds it necessary to tell us Christians, all right, you're justified by grace through faith alone in Christ, now this is how you are to live. But he also finds it necessary to speak to those who have come to faith in Christ out of the nightlife of Rome and to say to them, this is how you must not live. You must not live in those old ways. You must not continue those old patterns. You must replace those things with godly living. And I wonder if we're not, we're not forgetting this and just not doing a good job, not nearly as good a job as our fathers did in understanding the necessity of the negative. Now instead, and this is the third, yes, and final point. <laughs> this is the third thing we find here. Instead, three, put on Christ. Put on Christ. You see, he says that twice in different ways. In verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then in verse 12, he says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So twice he says, put on. Put on Christ Put on the armor of life. Someone has translated the arsenal of light. When he speaks of putting on the armor of light, he indicates that until the coming of Christ, we can expect to do battle. We do battle in our Christian lives until Jesus comes again. Putting on Christ means that you're putting on a uniform. Putting on Christ means that you are a soldier. And so, Christian, remember who you are. Walk and live and fight accordingly. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
I think I've mentioned this, this to you before, but every time I read the passage, I, I simply remember the days when I used to be able to run in the mornings. I can't do that anymore. But <clears throat> I used to run you know, just mile, mile and a half, three times a week, just to keep in good health. And I would do it very, very early in the morning. It was always dark when I would go out. But as I would go, the dawn would gradually appear. And there is that point at which it seems almost as if day and night are doing battle with one another. You can hardly tell if it's night or if it's yet day. What the Apostle Paul is saying to us is the night The night is passing away. The day is fast approaching. Just as when I would finish my run, by the time I would return home, there was the brilliance of the sun shining in the morning. Jesus is going to come. We live, we live in the dawning of that new eschatological day. The dawn is upon us. We have been awakened. Put off your night clothes. Put on your day clothes. God says the night is far spent. The day is at hand. 1 John 2.8, little children, it is the last hour. What is next expected is the coming of Christ. Long for this day. Desire this day. Look for this day. And allow your anticipation of that day to transform your life. Let us repent of not living consciously that the hour approaches. And let us awake out of the sleep of sin daily. And let's help one another do this. When you see me drowsy, about to fall asleep, I hope that some of my brothers will come and shake me and say, David, wake up. You don't live in the night anymore. You're a soldier of the cross. You must be alert. And I hope that you have people in your lives that will help you to stay awake and alert as the night passes and the dawn approaches. We live in the epilogue of God's masterpiece, and soon the last page will turn, and the book will be closed, and then we will cast our crowns before Jesus, lost in wonder, love, and praise. God's people said, Amen. Amen.